Have you ever had this thought? I know, fill in the blank, is wrong, but in this case, it's going to be okay for me. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Have you ever started to think of exceptions for the things you know that are wrong? And you say, you know, I know this is wrong and it actually does some damage, but just this once, it's okay. The problem with this text this morning is I'm, I'm sitting here and I was talking to Linda. I was trying to find Linda, but I was talking to Linda before the service. There's a chance that you could read this text in Revelation and get caught up on the imagery and forget that what he's after is a life that's not compromised in his people. So in the Ephesus letter, it was talking about all the things we do, but those things are not usable by God or for God without love being attached or the source of them. And the second one, Smyrna, was about faith. The faith is about the end game, not how you start, but how you finish. Today, Pergamum, this letter of Pergamum, is aimed squarely at the ethics or the behavior of our, of our lives. And so let me read the text, okay? And then, and then we'll do some work. I'm going to try not to get caught too much up in the imagery here, but I need to read it and then go on. Okay, are you ready? Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with a sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to defy me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you who are teaching that thoughts of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who, you follow, who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give them some of the hidden manna from heaven, and I will teach the, and I will give each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except for the one who receives it. Okay. So Balaam and the Nicolaitans, I need to get to that before we get back to some of the imagery of the sharp two-edged sword and all of that. Balaam, if you want to know, you can go back to Numbers and read the story, but basically Balaam and the Nicolaitans made the same mistakes in different directions, and I'm going to tell you about what that is. So Balaam said essentially this, you are the people of God. You're the covenant people of God, and nothing can go wrong for you, so go ahead and do these things because it can't harm you. The Nicolaitans said, from the other direction, if you do these things, it will free you up in this society to be the people of God. Do you see how those are similar mistakes about this? Well, what were they talking about? Well, the society that they're living in is such a thing where they would have these banquets at 
the public banquets would be at temples and they would sacrifice food and then they'd have this big feast and then after the feast, they'd turn off the lights and have an orgy. It's a little bit of a problem for the ethics of a Christian to get involved with this. Now, we would often say to ourselves, but idols, you know, food sacrifice to idols isn't really a big deal because they're just wood. But that's not the culture that they lived in. What they believed is that when you eat that food at that feast, you are making an agreement with that God that you're for them and they're for you. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians has this large argument about whether or not Christians should eat food offered to idols. And he said, really, it's not a problem because we know there's nothing behind them except if you do it and somebody weaker than you sees you do it and falls because you did it. Why is that a big deal to Christians? Do you know what the central designation for Christians is in the Bible? Witnesses. Now let's set everything aside for a second and place yourself in a courtroom setting and say, what is the purpose of a witness in the courtroom? To be believable and trustworthy. Good witnesses then have not done that behavior. So if you were in the courtroom and you were part of the law breaking that the courtroom scene is about, you're an accomplice or you're part of that and you turn state's evidence and then they put you on the witness stand, people go, he's just doing that or she's just giving that testimony to get out of trouble. Not very believable witnesses. But if you were somebody nearby and say, I saw what God did, and you don't have any of this this compromising behavior attached to you, then your witness is much stronger. Now, why do I say compromise? Because that's what Balaam was sort of saying. It's okay for you. You're the people of God. You get to do this stuff. It's okay. It can't harm you. Well, it might not harm you, but I guarantee you it will affect your witness and how the world sees you. You might say to me, but they see I'm a person of integrity. I might do that. Or you might do this. This is something that has happened in our world, okay? I, Karen and I were invited to a meal one night at some people's house, and the whole thing was to get us to sell products. And they and and their whole witness about what God has done in their lives was about whether or not we could sell detergent. <laughs> what are you willing to to wed your witness to? That is the question at hand here. What are you willing to wed your witness to? And this is the thing. The Nicolaitans say, look, you have some requirements. In Pergamum especially, you had some requirements. Why does it say the sharpest two-edged sword and all that? Because in Pergamum, the Roman proconsul was, and he was the one who had the right to kill somebody. Remember, when uh, in the story of Jesus, when he goes to trial, they take him to the proconsul and they say, you kill him. Well, he says, no, you guys do it. He, they say, no, we, we don't have the right of the sword. You have the right of the sword. That's what's going on. That's why they take Jesus to Pilate and to Herod back and forth, because they're the proconsuls. They have the right to end somebody's life in Roman rule. 
In Pergamum, that's where this person is. And so there's this thing in society. You know, if you're in Thyatira, which is her next city, and you speak out and you say, well, you know, I'm not going to say Caesar is Lord, you might not be in as much trouble as if you do it in the capital where the proconsul is. Because they might, in order to be killed in Thyatira, you have to do it so boldly that they send you to Pergamum to make it happen. But if you're in Pergamum, you don't have to go anywhere. They're right there on top of you. So why does it say Jesus has the two-edged sword in his mouth? Well, you might search the scriptures all the time and see this spot where Jesus says specifically, don't fear the one who can merely end your life. Fear the one who can separate you from God. The word of the Lord is sharper than any two-edged sword able to separate bone from marrow and spirit and all those things. That's what's going on here that Jesus has doesn't don't get caught up in the picture that out of his mouth comes the sword it goes you know and gensu's everything. It doesn't do that. That's not what's going on is his word. We search the scriptures every day thinking that in them is life, but they point to a person and that person is Jesus and he's the truth. Or in other words, we say it this way. The truth is not a set of facts, it is a person that we need to know. And that person sets us free. So when the scripture goes on and says the truth sets you free, it's not a set of facts setting you free, it's Jesus setting you free. Does that make sense? Good. I know I almost played second fiddle to a baby there. Happy baby noises are fabulous. (laughs) I, I love that. She makes good eye contact, too. <laughs> so we get back to this thing. I want to read some text here. And and I guess I don't want to read those texts. So what am I on about, about this idea of... Compromise within your witness. What's the big deal? I mean, to the pure, all things are pure. Except for the back half of that scripture says this. Except to the people who are not pure, everything is dangerous. Or, as we would say this from um, (coughs) Jeremiah 17... The human heart is the most deceitful of all things. It is desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Or from Titus 1.15, everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences have been corrupted. That's the back half of that, right? We're, we're, I know people that just love to bring out that scripture to the pure. All things are pure. You know what the back half of that scripture is? Your brain needs conversion. That's the back half of that scripture. That's what Pergamum is on about here. Remember from James four seventeen, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. 
So what is sin? I'm very famous on this, that I have three definitions of sin. These are my technical definitions of sin, and you've heard them before, and they bear repeating because they each of them always break relationships somehow. Because you take whatever, you know, I know this is bad, but this one time it would be okay, really says what is what I want is more important than my relationship with whoever else is around. First type of sin, the ick I do that gets on other people and me. That really breaking relationships. The second type of sin, the ick others do that gets on them and me. And it breaks relationship. And then there's some ick that we all just walk around in with hip waders and you just can't get out of it, but it does break relationship. Sometimes it, it, it forms, you know, you can't pin it on anybody. And if you spend all your time trying to pin that sin on somebody, then you end up creating jails and bondages for other people. For instance, if I try to pin sin on somebody that doesn't belong there, I might end up as somebody that I know had said to them after their baby died, what is your family sin that this happened? And the pastor that said that to them was pretty lucky I wasn't in the room. Okay, do you, do you understand what I mean? They were lucky I wasn't there. Because that's just bondage. Because there's more subtle forms of that bondage. It's like, well, you, you spend a lot of time sick. What's your sin? Or if you just had enough faith, that would be handled. That is not what the scriptures say. That is not the truth, and the truth sets you free. And remember, the truth is not a set of facts. It's a person. And we were in this little spot. Love the scripture you read this morning. Are you ready? So you go up on the hill with Jesus, and he shines white. His clothes are whiter than any bleach can make them. Do you know in the ancient world, white is really expensive because it's really hard to keep clean and then get clean. And so white is a unique thing. White wedding dresses didn't really even happen until the 20th century because it was too hard to make them white. And you go up there, and Jesus is talking with Moses, the giver of the law, and Elijah, the, the representative of all the prophets. So Jesus is speaking with the law and the prophets up there, and Peter, not knowing what to say, instead of keeping his mouth shut blurts out, oh, it is a really good thing I'm here. Let's build tabernacles for each of you, and then we can sort of worship. And the force of that scripture is really powerful. We could worship all three of you here. Oh, it's so good. We see Jesus and the law and the prophets, and we can worship the law and the prophets. And right in the middle of that, God interrupts and says, no, this is my son. You listen to him. That's the force of that scripture. And if you've never heard me say that before, I'm sorry. But that's the force of who Jesus is. To the law and the prophets, we search the law and the prophets all the time so that we might find eternal life. No, we search the law and the prophets so that we might know who Jesus is and then in him find eternal life. That doesn't mean I want you to give up reading your Bible. That means... Recognize what the Bible's doing. 
is it's trying to peel off this Christian veneer that some people like to be on there. So I, ha- I know I have some woodworkers in here. Veneers are what? Very thin layers that make one thing look like something else. Right? So an oak veneered plywood has a very thin layer of oak on it, and then it's plywood underneath, or the garbage wood that they put together with glue. Well, the problem with a Christian veneer is it's about skin thin, skin deep, and it's not real inside of us. And, and, and a Christian veneer allows us to live in this spot where we would literally say, I know this isn't a good thing to do, but it would be okay this one time. Instead of good saying, oh, what I'm doing is not a good thing to do. I should. And what's the scripture say in Pergamum? Repent of your sin or I will come among you suddenly. That's what Christian veneers are for. And how do you get a veneer off? I've got my tool in my toolbox, right? So my tool is this. So often, often, um, if it were paneling and you might have trouble getting the nail off, this is what's called a cat's paw. And you use a cat's paw to get a nail that's buried deep into something. Now, that's what, I, that's what I would use. By the way, if, if you take your hammer, and you put this just above the nail that you want to get out, and you drive this into the wood, it's going to do some damage. But it will get that nail out. That's what Pergamum is about, that Jesus is taking this thing into our life, and he's hooking on to the sin in our life, and then he's prying it out. And he's saying, look, I need you to understand this. That if you compromise your witness, you're no good on the witness stand. If you've got that big old sliver in you, first take out the sliver so that you can heal. Another little story about slivers. You know, how did, how did your mom take out slivers or your dad take out slivers? Did they take a needle and sort of poke at it and do this thing? Tweezers. Tweezers. But what if it's buried? You got to take the needle. That's not what I did. My kids always came to me. They didn't want mom poking the needle in them and all this stuff. But dad had exacto knives. And if you take a sharp pointed exacto knife, you can follow the thing down and just lift it right out and make one little cut and there's no, and it heals faster. It's a sharper point. It's the whole thing. But let the reason I bring this up is very specifically this. God needs to remove this sin from us. It's not enough that we begin to tolerate the people that do these things and, and boy, they bring teaching into us and, you know, it's okay. We're just waiting. No, this, this is the idea of the Christian church, okay? The church of Jesus Christ is to be uh, a community that welcomes people in. This is from one of the commentaries. Jew and Gentile, free and slave, male and female, all are welcome. But the church is not inclusive of ideas and all presuppositions. Of all social and spiritual persuasions, all of us are welcome, but all of us are then called by the head of the church, that's Jesus, 
to repent and change our minds to submit our thinking to the thinking of Jesus Christ. Or, in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's what's going on in this letter to Pergamum. I want to make sure that we get to this spot and I want to make sure that we understand this, that, that as we welcome people in, we are careful and we're patient with them and, and we're loving and we're all those things. None of those directly equal tolerance. Tolerance often means we just put up with it forever. But if I'm tolerant of sin in my own life and I just put up with it forever, then I perpetuate the idea of a Christian veneer. And if I'm talking to you and I'm piercing your heart this morning, it's not me, it's the Lord doing the work. So now, let me read this again from Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between the joints and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And and this one, oh, let's just go on to... I'm going to go back and read this, and I'll talk this through again. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Not the Roman proconsul, Jesus. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan is enthroned. Does that have to be Pergamum? It doesn't even have to be a city. It could be your heart. I'm in uh, Revelation 2, in the letter to Pergamum. Yet you have remained loyal to me. Your faith is strong. You trust me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas... Who cast out, this is what tradition says, this is what Antipas did. He went in and cast the demons out of the idols at a feast in Pergamum in AD 92, and they boiled him in oil for doing that. You refused to deny me even when Antipas was my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you who are teaching that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have the Nicolaitans among you who follow a similar teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and I'm going to fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has ears to hear, if you've got a mind that understands, anybody that's got that, who's reformed in the shape of God's image, if you've got that in your life, understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I'll give you some manna who's been hidden away in heaven. What is manna? Manna is food from heaven that keeps you alive when you need it. And I'll give you a white stone a brand new name, God, who makes you a new creation, does this. He 
and gives you a new name to fit that new creation. That's what's going on with the Israelites when they come out of Egypt, that he's taking a people who are not a people. They have no name of their own. It's what he's doing with Abram when he makes him Abraham. It's what he's doing with um, Israel when he renames Isaac Israel. It's what he's doing all the way through. It's what he's doing with Peter, when he renames him, he's a new creation and naming authority. He gives them a new name to fit their new creation, that their mind is renewed. This is the battle for your mind today. Will you be conformed to the world or transformed? Will you accept the very personal nature of he gives you a name that only you and he knows? A personal relationship and the feeding from heaven. And he does all of this for his name's sake, his reputation, his witness in us, our witness in the world. To anyone who has a brain that can understand, let them listen and hear what the Lord is saying to us.